everybody, it's Ian King, founder of King Sports International, athlete preparation coach and innovative training methods that have changed the way the world trains. Today, we will be talking about transfer. Now, we have a number of our coaches on the line, uh, including Paul Briggs. Paul, you've got to come off mute and confirm your audio is good. That's it. Yeah, I'm here. So I know the main focus will be around the concept of transfer, but from a unique perspective, the, the book I wrote, uh, towards the end of last year, it was about how to transfer strength training. We're now going to focus more today on the psychological component of athlete preparation because at the end of the day, every, all our training that we do is intended to transfer, to optimise either sport or life function. Now, Paul's got a pretty special interest in um, the concept of uh, transfer of training uh, from a psychological perspective because of his sports background. And, and uh, Paul will share a little bit more about that. And this is a, a, con, a concept or a component that does affect many sports training, uh, obviously dependent upon the, the genre that the sport falls within and also the coach's perspective, but it definitely shapes uh, many coaches' interpretation of how to train, including how to train physically in the pursuit of transferring psychologically. So, Paul, I'm going to let you... Uh, open up with, with the specifics of that question and also a little bit of background of where the questions come from. Okay, so um, my question to Ian was, um, I understand how training transfers to a sport, but there is also, in my mind, just from the experience that I've had being a professional fighter for 22 years and... and um, now being retired, I understand that there's a lot of things that we did that wasn't necessarily of benefit to the body, but it was definitely of incredible benefit um, to the mindset and to the, the mental uh, aptitude of a, of a fighter. So um, this is something that I've been really um, passionately um, uh, inquisitive about in, in my coaching career now is just understanding where that threshold is, where I understand that there's a lot of things that we may do um, with athletes that, that doesn't necessarily be of incredible benefit to them physically, but it is of incredible benefit to them psychologically. And so, you know, my question to Ian is, is this a figment of my imagination? Um, just coming off the, the experience that I've had in, in doing what I do, is it unique to me, which I'm sure it's not, but, um, you know, or, or is there such a thing as psychological transfer? And there's two parts to the question. The second part of the question is, where do you draw the line between what's beneficial psychologically to then what would be um, of detriment to the, the, the body in, in preparing physically? Um, because I understand there's a threshold there where from, from a, a fighter's perspective where you can push an athlete to a point that might just borderline on the, on the edge of, of um, not being productive for him physically, but is definitely 100% productive for him psychologically. And I know this is, uh, I can only speak from a, from a fighter's perspective, so I'm definitely open to obviously more insight around this. So when, when you ask the question, you know, is, is there any value to this? What, what's important from my perspective is you're, you're, you've been there, you're, you're, you've experienced it. If you've experienced a positive transfer, 
in any regard, then there's value in that. Now, some would uh, raise the placebo question, et cetera, et cetera, and there are, there are other variables that we need to qualify, but the bottom line is it's impossible for it not to be real if, if you perceived it to be real. Yeah. So before we get uh, deep into that, because I do want to run with a case study. I do want to run with an example. Um, I do want, before we do that, I, I want to just touch upon the concept of individualization because we can, we or any anybody in the coaching domain can come to a conclusion and say, um, you know, this is sport X and therefore you need to do Y. And my response would be, are we assuming that all athletes in sports X are the same? Perhaps one needs to do Y and the other needs to do Z. So, it's, a, it's important uh, thing for me to ensure that we respect individualization uh, as we get into some generalizations. Yes, we are going to be talking some generalizations, but let's always respect the need to, to individualize. And I'm going to come back to that as a, as a live case, that is a live example um, shortly. But let's start off with a, a real situation. And I'm just going to ask uh, the other coaches on the line if they could self-mute while until they have um, uh, an opportunity to, to contribute so that so at the moment just Paul and I are live on the line. So Paul, give me an example where you feel that tra transfer psychologically has been effective for you in the real world of sport. So um, I was preparing for um, the defence of um, one of my world titles as a, a Muay Thai fighter before I crossed over to boxing. Um, I was defending um, here in Australia and um, my father, who was my coach at the time, um, had he, he took me basically out bush and we did a lot of um, stuff that he was accustomed to in the armed forces. Now, um, this was over a three-day period. I was, I was sleep-deprived. I was um, um, deprived of food and uh, pushed to absolute limits with regards to um, uh, what I had to do, do physically. And uh, much like a, I, I imagine um, a, a soldier would be. And um, it was actually really detrimental, obviously, to my body. But, you know, we spent the rest of the week um, resting, recuperating. But what it did for me psychologically was, was incredible. I, um, you know, I, I defended my title with the first round knockout. Absolute decimation of an of a undefeated fighter up and coming. He was, he was going to be the next best thing since sliced bread in the fight game and, and um, was knocking everybody out. And, and we just absolutely completely um, broke him mentally. Now, and I, I put this 100% down to the, the, uh, the, the three days that we, that we spent I'll call it destroying me, um, but destroying the body to build the mind, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is not uncommon. And as you can imagine, it's, it would be fairly common in combat sports. With the rise of popularity of, of the military, and I think you probably need to be around the hovering around the earth for a bit longer than, than, than say, a younger person to appreciate this. But there is, in my opinion, there's been a popularization of... of of the military, in particular special forces of late, and th there's definitely an element uh, of this in special forces training and military training in general. 
but we, because of the popularization of it, we've seen it spread into mainstream training. So there are many um, environments where people seek to, to give the general population the, the taste of that, that boot camp experience. Um, so it's it's not an uncommon concept. The question is, you know, is it effective and, and to what level and when? So we've, we've established two things. We've established that it worked for you in your opinions and obviously in your coaching camp's opinion. And we've established that it is actually a very popular thing. So before we dig any deeper, there's two sides to this that I believe need to be recognised. There's the, the need for the athlete, the, an athlete-centric focus, and there's a coach-centric focus. Because what I believe often occurs is that the coach does things to the athlete to give themselves emotional comfort that, that the athlete is ready. And they might justify saying the athlete needs it, but from my uh, fairly extensive observation of coaches in a variety of sports at the elite level, a lot of the decisions made by coaches are actually to soothe their emotional fears that their charge, their athlete, has not done enough and is not ready. So before we uh, put all um, psychological training into, into, into one category, I think there's, there's two parts to it. There's a, there's a, coach, there's a coach worrying about you know, their lack of emotional control and then there's a genuine objective belief that it's going to be good for the athlete. Paul, can you see that potential? A hundred percent, definitely. And um, I just also like to add, like we we had extensive conversations around. Um, I, I say my father and I it was uh, doing the um, period organizing the periodization of of um, of the training for that fight. Um, as we talked about what the prep was going to be and um, how we wanted to approach it and and that sort of thing. And he said, look. There's something I've wanted to do with you for a long time, and I think this is the ideal fight to be able to do it. We have enough time to – it's going to really push your body to the limit, but we have enough time to be able to allow your body to recoup to then be able to peak properly for the for the actual fight. But I think what it will do for you psychologically will be profound. And and I have to say now it's something that um, it has actually been uh, of an asset to me for my whole life. Like I was, I was not 21. I was 21. I'm 44 now, and I was 21 then, as I was getting ready to defend that world title. And um, <clears throat> yeah, so for the last 23 years, it served me exponentially. Just, just having gone to that place. Um, as I got a little bit older, maybe a decade later, when I crossed the boxing, I was fighting in Chicago for a light heavyweight championship of the world, and. And whilst training at altitude uh, in California for that fight, um, I draw drew on on the the, the lessons learnt, you know, from a decade earlier. So um, my my inquiry into it, obviously, um, I'm learning so much more about um, transfer through the application of what I'm doing with my my fighters in the gym. Um, and I just it, this question just came up in my mind. I was like, "Wow, is it, it, there has to be due to that experience that I had." Um, I understand it, every athlete is completely different, and I approach every single fight with every single athlete that I have in the gym completely differently. Every camp that we do is is completely different. I've got I've got fighters right now preparing for fights, and um, they are preparing very differently because they they respond differently, you know, to to the stimulus and and the way that we apply the stimulus. So, um, it was it was it, through the this you know this experience of preparing these two fighters, I started questioning. Well, 
there has to be there has to be a fine line there. I know for a fact there's a fine line, um, but there has to be a benefit for psychological transfer um, to the athlete that that isn't necessarily going to be a benefit to their body, but the benefit to the 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 end result as a whole is going to be worth it. If that makes sense. And I suppose my job as a coach is is to find where that line gets drawn, you know. Absolutely. So let's go to the next level in the discussion. Okay. There is there is a, a big difference between the group selection approach and the asset that or the asset that's already been selected. And let me clar clarify this. Let's say you're going into a, a military environment and let's say there's been, you know, 50 people selected for that squad. Yep. There's no necessary requirement for 50 people to graduate. And there's no expectation that 50 will graduate. And depending upon the nature of the, the specific uh, squad, there may even be a, a, a very small number that they, they're looking for to graduate. So basically, they're applying what we used to talk about in the uh, pre-Berlin Wall days, in the in the pre in the in the in the, the communist unified Russian days, where uh, when we're dealing with the Eastern European sports coaches, their attitude was the athlete's like an egg. Throw the egg against the wall. If it breaks, it was no good. If it doesn't break, it's a good egg. So if we have a squad and our, our attitude is we don't care who comes through, we don't care how many come through, this is our requirement, then we can have what we call attrition. We can have an illumination process. But if we've got one Paul Briggs and one Paul Briggs preparing for a fight and we break Paul Briggs in preparation for the fight, that's a problem. So I've worked in a number of sports in a number of countries where the number of assets are small in number. So, for example, in a, in a, in a country that doesn't snow too much, there's not many athletes that can dominate in, in a winter-based sport. That's a great example. Yep. So when we apply the training methods that have been used where they can afford to break a lot of the eggs, it doesn't always work because we need a different mentality. So the, there is a difference between, okay, we know what we want to do, but we're all going to make sure we don't uh, break the egg versus, okay, we're breaking the egg, throw them out and get another one. Now, there's no such thing as all good in training. And I wrote this back in um, you know, my early foundations of physical preparation writings where I said, there's an opposite and equal effect. For all the good things that you have, there's always a downside in any training combination you have. So you can train um, low volume and keep someone fresh, but at, at that point in time, you might not be developing the so-called mental toughnesses. You can develop someone's mental toughness, but they won't be fresh. So there's always a trade-off, and so there's no right and wrong. Which brings me to the next point, is the timing in the athlete's career when this is done. Now, what we see in many team sports in the Western world is that this mental toughness training is done fairly close to the season. 
and yep. that often has a detrimental impact upon their performance in the season. So if we can take the timing into a discussion of when's the best time in an athlete's career, and I'm talking about a multi-year approach or a multi-cycle approach, like a, <clears throat> the Olympic cycle being four years, and if you're dealing with an Olympic athlete, then you know which of those four-year cycles are we going to do this in? <clears throat> That's a really valuable discussion. And I'd save a lot of what I see as some, some uh, errors or mistakes where, where, where the experience is brought too close to the competitive event. Now, in your case, your case study, the, the Muay Thai um, World Championship was, was done relatively close. But I, I don't see it working all the time when it's out of sequence in timing. And I can give a few specifics of that, but what do you think about that, Paul? Yeah, I, I've got to agree. I think that I was young enough at that time that my and and obviously with my father's uh, background of um you know grind and grind and grind, and if you if you couldn't grind then you're a pussy and just got to beat yourself up and keep going. Um, that 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 old school mentality. Um, I, I could get away with that then, but um, whilst preparing um for the world title fights in boxing. Um, a decade later, my body was not the same. You know, my body had been through a lot. So um, I knew as I was nearing the, I remember the last <clears throat> the last sprints that I did, um, which I do not do now with uh, with my fighters. Um, the last sprints that I did at high altitude um, in California whilst preparing for a uh, world title fight in boxing, um, I was tired my body was spent, you know, this was the last week of the fight. I should be jumping out of my skin and I was absolutely cane. So I learned a lot then with regards to just what you can, what a body, what you can get out of a young athlete compared to a more mature athlete. Um, and so therefore I understand now I've got a, I've got a young, young lad in the gym now. He's 23 years old and, and sorry, 25 years old. And um, this kid could be anything in boxing. So, this was the inspiration for the question um, originally and because I'm thinking I knew that was a benefit to me as a young man that actually the, the psychological transfer carried on for a decade and even into today, you know, what I handle in business now due to what I went through there psychologically is, is incredible. So um, I, I use those tools now. So I'm thinking if I can establish this in this young man now, whilst his body can sort of handle it, but also do it maybe not at such a um, smash and burn sort of way, then I, I think it would be of incredible benefit for him to build that psychological blueprint with which to draw from in the future. Absolutely. And, and there's some interesting points there because you also mentioned business. There was, there was a program... Uh, called Money and You that was run out of America and Hawaii back in the, I think, 70s and 80s. And it involved some pretty serious physical activities to improve people uh, with their, their mental toughness in business uh, as they're, they're in, and they're changing their mindset around money, et cetera. And that, um, that, was, that sort of approach has lost its way a lot uh, in a politically correct world. So mm. the, the, the use of techniques to develop ability to deal with adversity, et cetera, is, is probably uh, reducing its popularity in some areas because it's not really correct to do, but rising in other areas, 
uh, in, in say like boot camps for general population, well, that's going to make them vomit, and, and on the on the assumption that's going to improve their ability to, to the ability to lose weight. So we've had some gains, we've had some losses, but you've recognised the timing. That, so the biggest the biggest issue there is if you get a, an an athlete that's an older athlete and you smack them like that, you'll probably end their career. Yeah. Uh, either through performance or you know, poor performance or from injury. So there's a reason why you know the average age of a soldier in Vietnam was 18 years of, of age. Um, yes. You know, up until you know probably 20 years ago, the average age of special forces was in the early 20s. Now we've we've become a healthier population, and and the average age would be a lot older. But historically, the military has looked to the younger uh, younger body to do what it's done to them. Now, before we conclude that all mental toughness training done at a young age is good. What's intrigued me is, is, is talking to a lot of former military after they've left um, the military. And there's two types of, of discipline that I see. And there's a discipline that's forced upon you and the discipline that you're led to, to, to develop. And whether or not it's an intrinsic quality that a human has or whether or not it's trainable is something we can probably talk about for a long time. But yep. what I've concluded is that not all environments have produced long-term mental toughness or discipline. And I'm talking about not all military environments have achieved that. Yeah. And it's it's probably of less importance to the military because they're only interested in the here and now, but I, I've met too many that haven't been able to make these um, acts of discipline and, and, and decisions of discipline throughout their life, despite being uh, willing to embrace it or accept it or tolerate it during their military service. So I, I'm not convinced that every environment produces it, there, there, there is more finer variables, including the person, uh, the perhaps the intrinsic qualities of the person, but also the way it's it's implemented. So, Ian, there's, if I could just jump in there for any yeah. uh, military units as examples, uh, because mm. it, would, it would not be um, perceived well uh, on the upside and the downside. But some, I think, do it better than others. And it might be, and I say might be, relevant to the whether or not they're willing to let them fail or whether they want to ensure that they come through with them and therefore give them more help. But that's probably something for another. So for what we've, what we've done is we've, we've said that provided you take the individual into account and provided it's what you really believe that the athlete needs, not just to give coach emotional comfort. And provided you take into account into account that you don't want to break the asset if if you've got the assets already established as the, the one you're taking to the to the, the big show as opposed yep. to uh, being a selection process and provided that's the right stage of the career the final decision comes down to 
what specifically do we do? And then secondly, how do we read it in the moment to know whether we're, we're overstepping the boundaries? Because, and, and I'll probably do that one first because I've opened that, that Pandora's box. I'm really um, reading too much, unfortunately, of the, of the athletes now being reported in the media saying, you know, I, I, I did my ACL or similar. Uh, I don't, I, 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 it came as a complete surprise. Um, I don't know how it happened. And, and I'd like to tap them on the shoulder and say, well, listen, the body gave you a lot of messages. I can tell you how it happened and I can tell you why it happened. And don't say the body didn't give you warning. Now, I don't entirely say to the athlete, you should, should have known it better because as coaches, it's our job to protect the athlete and it's our job as professionals to, to be able to read the messages. So I don't expect an athlete to, to be necessarily innately educated to do that but they do bear the, the fallout. The, you know, at the end of the day, if they're not involved in the decision-making, then they're gonna pay the price um, as a buyer beware outcome. So I believe there are more than enough messages, but is there enough experience and wisdom to say, this is all we need to do. If we overstep this mark, we're gonna create a problem. Now, the problems I'm talking about in the first instance are injury, number one. Number two, yeah. excessive fatigue that may impact upon an impending competition. And number three, psychological scarring. Now, mm. you know, if we were in a more brutal world, we'd be less concerned by the last. But I want to give you examples of, of each of those Three, so I believe in relation to point two, fatigue into an impending fight. I think your your title fight, your boxing title fight, or your boxing defense, uh, title defense, um, the one you referred to in California, was a good example of the messages weren't read and your competed fatigue. Yep. 100% agree. In relation to Injury, the number of in injuries that occur in training in a sporting team where the assets are already selected. Now, I'm not, this is not a military selection process where if we break a few, that's okay, there's more, there's more bodies to replace them. We might have um, a starting team for uh, representing our world, representing our, our uh, world championships, representing our team, uh, our country, or even say the Golden State Warriors. You know, they had they had their bench uh, and their and their starters all suited up, and and this is not necessarily related to mental toughness. But what I'm saying is, when your assets are already pre-selected, you don't want to break your asset, and you're losing your asset, and that affected obviously the outcome in the 2019, 18-19 uh, season playoffs. Now, the third uh, case study I'll refer to is the potential psychological scarring. I, I had uh, a, a greater conversation with one athlete, phenomenal athlete, very good career, but suffered from um, chronic fatigue during his career. So you know, he may have had some form of glandular fever or Epstein-Barr's virus or whatever, but he was considered to be psychologically weak because he, he, he reported being tired all the time. 
And so to solve the problem, they sent him out to spend time with a particular physical coach who flogged him up and down the beaches, both in the water and on the sand. So they punished the boy for having a, a genuine medical condition because it was interpreted as a psychological weakness. Now, you know, I'm not saying that he was slitting his wrist 20 years later, but that's the sort of psychological damage that you could do to a person that I think is unnecessary when you've misinterpreted the messages. My why is yep. the person's not, not working? So when you are implementing or when anyone is implementing training with the intention of developing psychological qualities to transfer to sport, what is their skill set to know how much is enough mm. as it relates to injury, fatigue, and psychological damage? Right. And have you thought that one through, Paul? Yeah, hundred percent. That's that's my dilemma. That's sort of where I'm at right now. I'm like caught in that. Where, where where's that line drawn? You know, I suppose that's. And, and again, in in my mind, that's uh, that that's only going to come with experience. I mean, I can't and I cannot base my experience on. I cannot overlay my experience on any any other athlete. They're just not. It's a different. It's a different. Um, it's a different world we live in now. With with the, the young oh, from from a boxing perspective anyway from the the boxers um, they're not uh, of my generation we train differently we we came from a different world to what they do now you know in saying this there's a, there's another part to this equation which is quite incredible and this athlete that I have um, was actually born with no testicles so he's I. I had dinner with him the other night just specifically to, to really d dive deep into where he's at with this. And um, he shared with me that um, the struggles that he had psychologically around it, you know, as he grew, grew up and um, the work that he has done to get to where he's at now, because I just don't understand for a, 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 a young man with no balls has the biggest set of brass balls, excuse my uh, expressions here, but, um, there's no other way to explain it. Like this, this kid has just the, the kahunas he has on him are, are incredible. So I said, and this is why I wanted to have a conversation with him. And I said, mate, I want to take you out for dinner and have a really good chat about some pretty challenging stuff. And he said, yeah, I'm open to that. I built the rapport with him over, you know, the the last few, um, uh, probably four or five months. And um, I said, Let, let's let's dive deep into, um, uh, you know, your physical. Um, uh, challenges and he said I, I, do I have any <laughs> first God bless you sorry about that um, I got cut off um, so yeah he said that he, he said I've done so much work around just accepting myself as I am that now I can I can sort of channel a lot of the frustration that I had you know growing up in that sense um, with, with no testicles um, uh, into my career. So, um, yeah, the sparring session that he had just on the weekend was with a gentleman, you know, two divisions above him, and it was a toe-to-toe -to -toe war. It was unbelievable. You could have sold tickets to it. It was better than, you know, some of the fights I've seen in recent times. Um, so 
again, I sort of sat there and thought, oh, this will be interesting for me to ponder and just uh, ask Ian when I speak, you know, when I was planning to speak to you about this um, being right now. Um, it just helped me to understand that th what we, in my experience now, there's certain things that an athlete is going to do in life that with the right guidance, he can turn into absolute fuel for um, that psychological transfer of, of um, strength, you know, that psychological aptitude. And I'm learning this now just off this athlete that I'm working with, you know, this fighter that I'm working with. So um, I don't necessarily, I think now I don't necessarily have to get him out in the field busting, busting his ass um, like I did because I feel like he's kind of psychologically already done that or had life do that to him. And so, therefore, um, what I saw on the weekend with the sparring session, it sort of, it just reiterated that, that um, he's there psychologically. Like, he's a beast psychologically. So, Oh, I'm glad you can, you, you can see, and that's individualising the need for it, rather than making that blanket statement that it's boxing and everyone needs it. That's good. Whereas, and then the guy he was sparring, who's actually still in the gym now, right now, um, on the other side of the room, of, of the wall that I'm speaking to you on, um, he was the other guy in the ring. Like, he's had a charmed life, nice upbringing, fine young man, you know, really good guy. A bit of a beast, but doesn't have that same um, kill in him. And... Um, so he is a gentleman that I'd want to take to a similar kind of experience to what I experienced with my father, you know, in being really driven to, to the edge. Um, because he's got, he's got that guru in him, but just nowhere near um, to the level of, of this other young man with no chess school. So, um, yeah, this is, this is what really um, drove me to, to ask the, the, to go deep with this question, uh, Ian. So two points, two points from yes. that. The, 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 re, the reality that athletes and humans that have had a more challenged life have more ability to overcome adversity is it well recognised. So we'll find in sport, for example, people who are desperate to raise their socioeconomic status through sport typically will tolerate more to achieve their goal. In other words, they're really hungry for success. Yes. And in life and in, and in business, you'll find some of the greatest achievers were born with life adversity. So, for example, the man who, who speaks so eloquently about you've got to be hungry as a motivational speaker was Les Brown. He was, he was born... Um, either as an orphan or placed in, in, a, in a foster care early age. You know, I, I believe Wayne Dyer had the same thing. Anthony Robbins, um, you know, didn't have the best relationship with his parents. So it's, it's quite a common trait. So what I say to people is that if you've had adversity in life, celebrate it because it was a gift. Yep. Yep. And, and you can actually, you know, if you find someone who hasn't had that level of adversity, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to use emotion at all, but if you were to use emotion, you would say, you know, you can have sympathy or empathy. Um, th th there is a lot to celebrate about life's adversity. You know, 
I came from even a slightly, slightly earlier generation than you did, or half a generation earlier than you did. And that yes. you know, things changed a lot between in that in that period of time alone. Um, so I, I know exactly what you're talking about between you know a, a privileged upbringing and a hungry upbringing. So that was the first point I wanted to make. The second point I want to make is that whatever you do in your in your experimentation or your development as a coach in, in experimenting with psychological training strategies, I, yes. I would probably encourage you to err on the side of caution initially. Now, why I say that is it's no different than uh, in sport when you want to change something, I get them to over-exaggerate. When I want to change a technique in, in sport, I temporarily get them to over-exaggerate it because it changes quicker. But in this, I'm saying go conservatively because the price you pay for overstepping, and I'm not talking about um, you know the, the political correctness price. I'm talking about the cost to an athlete's career. Uh, yeah, would be Could be pretty big, and you, you're probably better off saying, you know, we probably didn't push it enough, um, and I'll have to push it a bit further next time um, than the other way around. So that's my counsel to you: is to probably under under train rather than try and find the threshold straight away like and yep got it got it having said that everybody is going to be different and every year as they age they're going to be different which you know, brings us you know, back to the point of knowing knowing um, how to read the messages so, so as you learn uh, go there slowly underdo it yep. initially and, and yes. seek to understand the concept of training is built on futurism, and this is a concept that people, some people might reject and say it's hysterical bullshit, but when we're training, we're making a decision about how much to do today, how hard to do today, based upon the impact of us in the future. So for me, training decisions are futuristic decisions. They're based upon your ability to create hypotheses in the future based upon the experiences of the past and experiences across the board. So this is a whole new set of decision making where you've got to decide you're already, you know, out of out of the, you know, you're already stepping out of the, the normal, but you've still got to know where where that is. Now, in the extreme cases, and I'm I'm being real extreme here, I mean you could kill someone. Now, if I'm in the military and someone dies in training, you probably aren't going to hear about it. But if you're in a say an American football high school team, and someone dies whilst carrying a log around the oval, which I believe did happen in the last few years, the world's going to hear about it. Um, so, what, 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 and it's not just about whether people hear about it, I'm just saying, does that serve your purpose? Is that going to help your cause or hinder your cause? So, when people have died in training, either that threshold was acceptable. Or someone failed to read the messages. Now, I don't believe it possible that an American high school football training camp, anybody would have ever said, well, if we lose one today, it's okay. I do know that in the military, they're a little bit more um, accepting of that possibility, especially in live firing situations. You know, it's, it's not an uncommon outcome. It's, it's, you know, it's the stakes are high in terms of mortality so just be just start 
thinking about how you're going to read the, the messages, the signals, because that's what we have to do. We have to read signals in training and make decisions about the future. And like as a coach, you do that every single day. Every coach either does it or fails to do it, but either way, they inadvertently make decisions about the future by their either their their failings or their failing to recognise the this the entire aspect of, of how this works. So it's by act or omission we make decisions about their future. So my last point that I wanted to raise uh, in our discussion, just to, to say we've gone through the need to individualise, the need to recognise the need between the coach's emotional needs and the athlete's true needs, the concept of, you know, are we got, have we got a lot of eggs we want to test where they're going to break or have we got an asset that we need to protect? That was the third point. The fourth point was the timing, the stage of the year, stage of the career. And I've got to tell you, I've seen um, a lot of money spent on high-altitude camps, especially by Australian athletes, that, are, that they've... I'll just give them my PIN number. They could put them, put the money into my account. It would have been more effective for their competitive season, but that's another story. Uh, we've talked about signs uh, and knowing you know, the three major things we've got to be conscious of is injuries, uh, fatigue affecting impending performance and, and potential emotional damage or, or worse, death, and, and, and how to read that. And the last thing is talking about strategies because at the end of the day, you know, we've, we've come up with some nice theoretical framework, but we haven't got down to nuts and bolts about strategies. So now we're going to get really into strategies. And the first thing I want to say about strategies is it is really a transfer topic, Paul, because it's a question of when does this transfer? And I'll give you an example. In a preparation for one World Cup, one national team, one World Rugby Cup, one national team did live firing with their rugby players, shooting live rounds over their heads at a, at a military establishment. Now, when does that transfer to the game that they were playing? You know, you know, I haven't gone deep into the sport because I'm not, I'm not trying to out them. So the first question is, are the strategies being implemented going to transfer? Now, they don't necessarily have to transfer from a, a physical skill perspective, but they need to be able to transfer in some way, in, in, in some sort of psychological transfer. So... In your opinion, Paul, just for the purpose of dialogue, is there any situations where the the activity could just be irrelevant and not not transfer at all? Now, and just got to hit that unmute button, Paul. An example of that would be if we had a land-based activity and we took them out in the ocean. Um, you know, we, we, we have to ensure that the psychological transfer is going to work. Can, can you see any situations, Paul? Now you were good there. You come back on, on the green. So you're on self-mute now. Paul, I just need to flick the switch there and that's it. Can you see any situations where the activity might not be relevant? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Can you hear and, me? And, yeah, I can hear you, Paul. And, and yeah. that's a subjective decision. You know, there's no... There's no, there's no rule book out there. There's no, probably even a textbook out there telling you what, you know, extreme psychological activities that you can engage in that are relevant or not relevant. Mm. But if I, you look I, at the big, I think. Yep. So you go. No, go ahead, Paul. No, I, I just now I'm thinking as you as you're speaking, and I, and I think that um, what I witnessed uh, these two young men experience even on the weekend, you know, in the in the the, um, 
the real heavy sparring session that we had was it, it was specific to what they do because it, it, they were doing what they do you know and it was it was the closest thing to like i said i, I could have i mean people are still talking about it you know um it was Saturday and I'm still getting phone calls about this sparring session, you know, because it was better than most fights that have been seen in recent times. So I look, I'm looking at it just thinking, well, you can't get any better than that. That's They're doing exactly what it is that they do. And they were challenging each other in the best possible way. And there was no injuries, you know, but they were coming close to, I was just waiting for someone to get knocked out. You know, it was, it was um, quite incredible. Um, and even from the skill set that they were using, the defensive moves, all of it was was just unbelievable. So, I think. This, um, this sorry. This is good. This is a really good example. Yeah. So I, I sort of look at it because I've been thinking about it, thinking about it as I do um, since uh, I had the conversation. Since I mentioned it to you, could we have a chat about this? Because I was just thinking that this this must be the best possible. Um, psychological transfer that you can possibly have. I know for myself it was. You know, when I was sparring two or three guys in one, in one sparring session, doing three rounds each or four rounds each with them, and you're going to war with every single one of them, and you're pulling things off that you never thought that you could quite do, but you are doing them. Um, th that's what grows you. You know, so I'm I'm thinking psychologically, you come out of those spars just going, I'm, I'm ten foot tall and bulletproof. So and that's why that's why I want coaches to firstly look at strategies within their sport before they go to strategies from outside of their sport. And there's a number of reasons. Uh, yeah. The first one you've said is because it's more it's more transferable. Number one, it's the most specific thing you can do. Yeah. Number two, your body's used to doing it. You know, the, the bodies of, of, of diverse athletes aren't used to going to to a land warfare training camp. And crawling, you know, through the jungle or whatever other activities, their bodies aren't used to that. So you've got to reduce additional risks. There are so many additional risks that we introduce when we become non-specific, be it from a dehydration perspective, from a heat uh, perspective. And like there, there are there are young men who have had you know brain aneurysms from extreme heat. You know, this does happen. So. When you can find strategies that the athletes that optimize athlete transfer and reduce risk, for me, they're the best ones. And that's that's the sort of discussion I wanted to have, not only for yourself, but for everyone else. And I'm not saying that you stop there, but I'm just saying if you can get you can get so much of what you're looking for, that psychological toughness from within your sport. Now You've given one, which is simply a, 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 a getting exposed to a tougher situation than you would normally do. Now, I'm going to give you another one. When an athlete plays sport as a younger athlete against older athletes, that achieves a similar goal. Because now, of the experience? Because they have to overcome the adversity of the disadvantages they had. Okay. You will find a lot of successful athletes are successful in part because as a young athlete, they played against older athletes. Now, I'll give you a very specific 
family structure example. The, the younger children have to compete against the older children within a family are often more mentally uh, ability to handle adversity than the, than the oldest one, if it makes sense. Mm. Now, without wanting to open up Pandora's boxes of being accused of being a fake expert on child psychology, you know, it's, it's possible that, you know, the number three or, or number three or four, uh, if they had, were close in age and had to compete with their older siblings, from childhood is has got a greater mental toughness so when an athlete is selectively given opportunities to compete against bigger stronger older athletes it can actually be a strategy here that we're talking about now in the same way that i said the three concerns are will it injure them will it fatigue them for an impending event will it cause them ptsd you know, if it's the wrong time with the wrong athlete, it could crush them, no doubt about it. But this is a strategy that I look to use in the right with the right athletes, with the right young athletes. It's a strategy that's in the in the toolbox for developing the ability to overcome adversity and to become less phased by adversity. That makes now, sense, Amber. Yep. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I mean, I'm a twin, you know, my, my, my twin brother had more what? Sorry, no. in his little finger than I had in my whole body. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I went twice as far as he did. So, and I believe it's because I was competing against him daily. Absolutely. So he was probably a taller, bigger, stronger, et cetera, yep. et cetera. But you had, to, you had to overcome the adversity all the time. And you were probably the younger one. Were you born second? Yes, correct. So the what the child that's born first, from my experience, I've worked with quite a few twins, has a has a, a an air of entitlement, um, yep. and, and sometimes they their their desire to dominate the second born is successful, but sometimes the second born resists that dominance, and and if they've got that mongrel in them, that actually serves them well. They've they've had to overcome that that air of entitlement that the older twin has. Correct. So these are the sort of strategies that can be implemented that are really subtle that can make a really big difference. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> when you sorry, Paul, go ahead. About four pennies are just dropped now. That's great. So when in boxing, for example, when you're picking your fights, you know it's a great sport because you can select and you, and it's pretty measurable. Um, Yep. And, and even in sparring, it's not just about the the, the fight, the comp. It's it's about who you who you, what you do in training. And we can make or break a boy by the or a girl by their uh, the sparring partners. Yep. So the beautiful thing about this strategy is if you, if you do it for the purposes of like you know there's no expectation of winning per se. It's the qualities that you're going to develop from having to face that adversity early in your career. That can change it. So what I find is too many coaches and too many parents use blunt instruments, too big a hammer to achieve the goal. Yep. I, I'm not wanting to judge them harshly because they're doing their best. They and, and I think that's the, the, the best thing we can say is they did their best. But I know from my many decades of coaching and before that in addition to my many years of 
sport and, and having the same life experiences as others in, in, in sport and competing, etc. But we have so many strategies at our disposal, but we continue to use blunt ones. Now, I'm going to give the most uh, simplest and clear the way a coach talks to the athlete shapes their psychology every minute, every second, every word. We don't have to wait to take them to some extreme environment to start shaping psychology. Mm. The way we communicate, yep. the way we, we the way we expect or how we expect, it's just the art of communication has an inbuilt scope for developing positive, desirable psychological traits. And because the art of communication is is rarely studied and poorly executed, this opportunity is lost. Because athletes every moment of the day, the way they stand, the way they hold themselves, the way they speak, the way they use their eyes, the way they, you know, they, they present their aura, everything about the athlete is giving us continual messages as their teachers and their coaches and their guides to shape them. Now, I've seen, again, too many parents and too many coaches break their charges, break their athletes, break their children by the negativity in their, their words. So I, I, my goal is to build someone up, but I'm also willing to be brutal and blunt. I'm known for that but I'm also known for building them up and having incredible outcomes, exceeding their own expectations. So I know it can be done, but I know it can also be misused and um, be damaging. But I just wanted to draw attention to, to and, and, and again, I'm only talking, I'm not, I'm not going deep into to, um, the realities of it, of course, you really—it's it, a—it's something we teach it more in a in a kinesthetic approach. That, you know, if you study a high-level coach who's got the art of communication, you can learn a lot from them simply being in their environment. But it's—it's it's not something that's going to learn by reading a book, per se. You can get some strategies from from the textbooks, but it's really uh, an art that we teach in live execution, and you're going to have that experience in the near future. Awesome. So one of the last points I'm going to make about strategies is the need to be progressive. Now, it might sound really um, obvious and simple, but it is poorly done. Progression in physical or psychological, doesn't matter. Progression in physical, if you take an athlete and expose them to an activity not used to at a volume and an intensity that's beyond their ability, they will break. So we need to know how to be progressive, especially when we're exposing to new stimulus, new physical stimulus. From a psychological perspective, we also need to be progressive. We might have an athlete, we know that they're down here, they're one out of 10 in our mind in any given uh, uh, metric. We want them to 10 out of 10. We're not gonna smash them and bash them to bring them from one to, to, one to 10 in 24 hours. You know, that's doing what I said before. Is that's a risk of blowing them out of the water and, and, and wrecking the asset. We have to have the we have to have the wisdom and the patience and the long game. 
we have to have that delayed gratification to be able to to nurture the athlete. And I use the word nurture because, you know, it sounds a, 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 an oxymoron in the discussion we're having, but to nurture them from wherever you see them in this area of psychology to the, to the level you want them to be at. Because if from a teaching perspective, my saying that I, that I embrace, and it's not my saying that I've created, but it's not a learning challenge, it's a teaching challenge. It's our challenge as teachers is to, mm. to take them from one out of 10 to 10 out of 10. And the under, uh, overriding principle of that is let's do it progressively. So we might know what's missing, but the last thing that I want you or any coach to do or any parent to do is to sit down, sit down the athlete or their child and say, listen, you're one out of 10 in the head. And this is where you, this is where your holes are. This is where your flaws are. Bang, 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 bang. I mean, you know, you, there aren't too many that will rise above that. That is an adversity that some could rise above, but it's not what a strategy I would recommend. I'd rather, I'd rather have, you know, nine things in my mind and maybe share the first one or work on the first target, the first objective, get to that, and then start building from there. So this is where be progressive. Um, you know, you can be brutal and progressive. They're not, they're not opposites. Uh, it's just important to, uh, to to take into account the the need to be progressive both physically, psychologically, and to be patient. What we want is a vision for the athlete from the get-go, but we don't have the expectation that's going to happen tomorrow. We just when we're working with an athlete, we need to know at, at the elite level at least, Paul, do they have what it takes to make it? Are they a worth worthwhile investment from an asset perspective? Then the challenge is the, is the, the question, second question is how do we guide them to where we need to guide them? And, and I am I am very pro coaching potential. I believe that as coaches we can take somebody who the majority would write off, as long as they've got hunger, as long as they're driven internally, we can guide them to being great. They might not be genetically gifted, they might they might have a lot of deficiencies. But if they've got hunger and enough fundamentals to that we see potential in them, I'm very optimistic about the outcome. But you have to be willing to be a great coach to achieve that. And in doing so, you give more athletes opportunity to be great. You just have to have the wisdom to know who, who's who's got the goods and the skill set and the optimistic determination to, to, to take them forward. So um, be willing to embrace an athlete that might be lower in scores in some metrics, some areas, if you back yourself as a coach to guide them through. And you're asking great questions. So I'm, I'm optimistic for you as a coach. Awesome. So we've covered a fair bit of ground there, Paul, and I probably talked too much. Oh, no, it's incredible. I could listen to it all day. It's all good. <laughs> um, I will have to jump off now, though, because I've got um I've, I've got a, a gym full of fighters starting to fill up. But um, Good stuff. I, I really appre appreciate the time, and I appreciate the time of the other coaches as well. Uh, you're welcome. We appreciate the the, the, the subject you brought to the table and the reality of it. it's a real world. It's not a first world problem. It's a real it's a real challenge that you're you're embracing, asking the question, and the questions are the answer. And looking forward to being part of that journey with you, Paul. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll talk. Thanks, Brian.